All right, we're going to be in the Psalm, chapter 133 today. So if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and crack it open. If you don't have a Bible, um, maybe, you know, one of the things that we say often is we would love for you to go and take what we say and, you know, say, I don't know if I believe this Ben guy, um, but I want to read this for myself. That's a win for us. In fact, I would prefer you to not trust me and read the Bible on your own. Uh, we just think that there's that much power in you actually reading the Bible for yourself. So if you maybe don't have a Bible and you need one, you maybe have a Bible at the house and it's just a really difficult translation to read. On the way out, we've got a cool little Pinteresty bookshelf thing that we made out of pallets and it's stained and it's cool because we're cool. So, you know, you can grab one of those on the way out and go read all this stuff for yourself. But we're going to be in Psalm chapter 133 and this is a psalm that David wrote. Now, let me preface what we're going to talk about before we really jump into the psalm. So this is, this is one of the things that for me, as I thought about faith as a younger person, this was one of my big misunderstandings. Maybe not misunderstanding, this was one of the things that I always questioned. This is one of the things that I always looked at Christendom in general. I looked at church in general. I looked at all the Christians in general and thought, hey, if you guys all believe the same thing, if you guys all believe the same thing, why is it that there are about a thousand different denominations? I looked across it and I said, man, so you guys all believe in Jesus, but you got like the Baptist and you got the Methodist and you got the Presbyterian and you've got the Episcopal and you've got, you know, then you've got other denominations that don't call themselves denominations. If you're in the church world, you know, you got the Calvary Chapel group, which we love the Calvary Chapel group, but it's like their own denomination. And now you've got all the non-denomination, which are call themselves non-denomination, but almost non-denomination in and of itself is a denomination. You follow me? But you kind of look along Christianity, and I used to do that. And then, you know, you got churches that, like, this church split from that church, which split for that church. And you ask, well, why'd you split? And it's the dumbest reasons. I don't know if you ever asked me, ask church people this stuff. It's like, why'd you split? It's like, well, we thought when communion this happened, we thought when you baptized this happened, we thought, you know, when, when the church building, you know, I mean, honestly, churches split for, for the most ridiculous reasons. It's like, well, we thought the, 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 the carpet should be this color, and they thought it should be that color. And so we prayed about it. We thought, you know what, if that's the color that you guys want, God's leading us to a different color. Maybe he's leading us to a different church. It's like, that's stupid. And not that, obviously, not that all, you know, all the differences aren't stupid, all the different denominations aren't stupid. In fact, we don't, you know, believe that at all. But I remember as a young person, as I was investigating faith, asking this question. If you guys all believe the same thing, if you guys all think different things, then why are there so many different groups? And at the heart of today, let me just go ahead and cut this tension. We're not going to fully explain why there's tons of different groups. In fact, the reality is, is there's no way that we're going to be able to lead something where all of a sudden there's no denominations. You know, we just hold pinkies with each other and sing kumbaya as we sway back and forth. Like That's, that's not going to happen. But here's what I want to do. I want to talk about what God's calling us to as a church. I want to call, talk about what God's calling us to as a church as it relates to unity. Because here's the reality. As much as we can talk about Christianity as a whole, the more compelling thing is oftentimes within each individual congregation, there is a serious amount of disunity. And maybe for you, if you walked into church this morning for the first time or the first time in a long time, Maybe for you, this is what drove you away from church. Because it seemed like the more that you got involved in a past church, the worse the church was. 
You got to know the leadership of that particular church. You got to know the people of that church. And it seemed like the higher up the person was in a particular church, the more dysfunctional they were. It seemed like it was just, you know, the person who had the most issues, who was the most vocal person, got to be the leader. And so you got to know that church, and you can maybe vouch for this. Churches, individual churches, can be incredibly divisive places. And for some of you, again, maybe that's why you left church. And you had an issue. You didn't have an issue with God. You didn't have an issue with Jesus. You had an issue that you saw a place that should be described as love. But it seemed like the most unloving people were the people at the core. And so you decided that you didn't want to be a part of that. And reasonably so. Because who in the world would? And here's why this is important for us. Because at the center of where we're going as a church is a calling. And we feel God has called us as a church to go love and serve and reach our city. Specifically what that looks like for us is we have since the inception of our congregation, when we started out as a little, you know, 10-person Bible study in Frenchtown, meeting on Monday nights, we felt a call to go love and to serve the marginalized in our community and leverage whoever was in our congregation to serve. And as we've done that, frankly, we've grown. Especially over the last year, I was talking to somebody this week, I was talking to a guy, we were having a conversation about some future plans for DCC. And as we were discussing it, I was telling him, you know, it's, it's a little bit difficult to predict the future. Because at this time last year, we had two services. We had one at 11 and one at 5, and between both of them, there was about 50 people involved. And from last August until last April, we went from about 60 or 70 people that would regularly attend to over 300 people that would regularly attend. And I said, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to continue. I don't know if we're going to stay 300 people. I don't know if it's going to be 600 people. I don't know if it's going to be 500 people. I don't know if it's going to be 400 people. We could, you know, get smaller. We could go down to 200 people. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. If we're going to do what God has continued to call us to do in the city to reach people, the number one way, the number one way that the dream of God in a church gets thwarted is through disunity. is through disunity. Now, Psalm 133, David has a, a good picture of this. It says, a song of David, a song of a sense of David. Now, a little bit of backstory to tell you how David, you know, when they, David's writing this. There's, there's two basic scholarly beliefs about when David's writing this. David is either writing this when he gets named king or David had a little trouble with his son. His son basically kicked him off the throne. There was a big kind of issue that happened. And eventually David comes back into power. And so David's seeing this entire kingdom of the nation of Israel. Seeing how productive a nation that's unified can be. Or seeing how divisive a nation that's disunified can be. Can be how counterproductive a nation that's disunified can be. And he says this. He says, Behold... How good and pleasant it is 
when brothers dwell in unity. He goes, let me give you my subject real quick. He said, how great is it? How productive is it? How effective is it when people, when people are on the same page, when they get along, and it's not just a sense of getting along, but there is real unity, that we're going for the same thing, that we're doing the same thing. And then he describes it honestly in some ways that are a little bit outrageous. He says this, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard. And he gets specific, on the beard of Aaron. <laughs> Anybody here named Aaron? Now, we're going to do a little character lesson here in a second. Just kidding. So, it, it, it's, this, it's this odd thing. So, we're like, okay, you know, you got me. Yeah, man, unity, all this stuff. And he's like, it's like somebody poured this big thing of oil on your head. It's like, what? Is this Nickelodeon? Are we getting gacked right now, you know? And, and he's like, all right, so it's like it pours on your head, and then it gets on your beard. And, and uh, for them, they're like, what? That's great. We're like, all right, and then he's like, and it's like when it happened to Aaron, they're like, Aaron? We're like, Aaron, you know? Cool, and then he gets it a little bit, a little bit more graphic. He says, running down onto the collar of his robes, and it's kind of funny, so it puts an exclamation park. In other words, the author's saying, isn't that cool? We're like, no, that sounds messy, and what? I thought we were talking about unity. Now we're pointing oil on people's head, and this weird rando named Aaron, and, 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 and. As weird as it sounds, here's, here, here, here's what he meant by that. When they would pour, pour oil on somebody's head, it was this sense of almost like relief. It was just calming. It was this, and that, that might sound weird because to us that doesn't really mean any of that. But it was the sense of like just oneness of this person's getting oil put on their head. And it's really hard to describe because I honestly still don't get it. I just trust culturally that was a big deal. And he's talking specifically, and he says it's like when it happened to Aaron. And again, we're like, A.A. run? I don't know who that is. But as he's saying it, to them, Aaron was the first guy who was the high priest. So it had this big significance to this guy named Aaron. Aaron, when they became a nation, when all of a sudden there was kings and all this kind of stuff happened, and they, you know, put this high priest in place, there was this guy named Aaron, and he was the first one. He's like, so there's special emphasis, almost there's special spirituality, there's special, you know, anointing kind of that happens as it gets put on their head. He goes on to say this. <laughs> Culture, this is, this is even more difficult. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And this is the part in your quiet time where you're like, okay, let's go back to verse 1 where you're talking about unity. Because dew on the ground, on a mountain. But they talked about how this mountain, how this mountain, it would just produce massive amounts of dew and how in the morning time, you know, people would, that, that would even kind of go there in more of a modern time would go there in tents and they would sleep and they would wake up and everything would be so just covered in dew that it was almost like it just poured down rain the night before. And so he's, as he's talking, he said, man, here's the idea. Here's the idea. Here's the point, which culturally they understood, which is a little bit more difficult for us. He says, it's refreshing. It's good it's productive. It's special. When you have a group of people who are unified around the same idea, when you have a group of people who are unified around the same cause, when you have a group of people who are all different in a bunch of different ways, have all kinds of different preferences in a bunch of different ways, because whenever we come together as a church, there's always differences. There's differences in how you grew up and how I grew up. There's differences in where you grew up and where I grew up. There's differences in what kind of music you like and what kind of music I like. There's differences in, honestly, when we come to church, what kind of music we want to hear. There's differences in when we come to church, you know, how much music we want to hear. 
There's differences in teaching style. There's differences in even how long you want church to last. There's differences in how you interact with church. How you interact with God. How you interact with Jesus. He says, come on, come on, come on. We all have preferences, sure. But how great is it when there's a group of people who put their personal preference aside for the greater good of what God has called them to. See, what's interesting is this thing of unity is, is, is paralleled throughout all of Scripture. In fact, Jesus, we're going to flip over, we're going to be in John, the book of John. This is Jesus talking. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. So Jesus has been through, you know, years of ministry. Jesus, Jesus is on the tail, and he's actually within like the last 24 hours of when he's about to die. And he's praying. And as he prays, he prays for the disciples. He prays for, essentially, you and I. And as he's praying, this is his prayer, John chapter 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only. He's talking about his disciples. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. And here's what I'm going to pray for him. So Jesus kind of, you know, the last 24 hours of his life, is the last day, he's had an you know, incredible ministry, about to be, by the way, crucified on the cross, and said, okay, so there's going to be a lot of people who believe in me someday. There's going to be a lot of people who believe in the words of these original disciples. And so I want to pray for those disciples, but I don't want to just pray for them. In fact, I want to pray for everyone who ever will believe. And he could have prayed for anything, power, strength, courage, wisdom. You know, he could have prayed for this unbelievable connection with God. He could have prayed for a thousand different things. This is the one thing that he prays for when he could have prayed for anything in his last 24 hours to, to, to live when he's praying for you and I. And he says this, that they may be one. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that. In other words, there's a reason behind this whole unity thing. Because sometimes, and I think this is critical, sometimes we fail to talk about why. Because the idea behind unity isn't that we all just, again, hold pinkies and sing kumbaya and feel good about ourselves. I mean, that's nice. He said, but, but there's a reason for this desire for unity. And here's what it is. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, he pauses and says, okay, so this is supposed to be the effect of unity. That people who maybe are far from God would see the way the church interacts together. Would see the oneness that they have with each other would see this central idea, which is central to Christianity, that the most important thing in your life is Jesus. That you have given your life to this simple idea that you in and of yourself, me in and of myself, can't make our way to God. That I'm too sinful and that you're too sinful. And consequently, God made a way when he sent his son Jesus died on the cross, wiped away all of our sins because I'm a sinner and I can't unsin myself. He's perfect and he can't have sin in his presence. There had to be something to pay for that which I could not pay for. And he sent his son Jesus and substantiated the entire thing when he died on the cross and then rose again from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus was the cornerstone for the early church behind their unity. 
And Jesus is praying for his disciples and saying, hey, here's how this works. I want you guys to be so on the same page behind this whole thing. I want you guys to be so together behind this whole thing. I want this to be so much the center of your life that personal preferences, yeah, you got them, but they don't matter. What you prefer, yeah, it matters, but it doesn't, you know, ultimately decide whether you're going to get along. That people would see you and see me and see the unity, see the oneness, see the togetherness that happens. And as a result, they would see our Heavenly Father. Now, wouldn't that be different? Wouldn't that be different if people came to church and what made them believe in God wasn't a pastor who was persuasive, but was a congregation who genuinely loved each other and was on the same page? They came into church and they didn't say, oh my gosh, the music. I mean, I just had 55 goosebumps and I believe in God now. If it wasn't, oh my gosh, you know, the pastor said this unbelievable thing and I believe in God now. If it was people who walked in and said, I've just never seen that kind of a group of people who genuinely loved each other on the same page. And I don't know if I believe in God yet, maybe, but I believe that there's something different about them. You see, they got this in the book of Acts, chapter 2. It tells the book of Acts, by the way, is a story of the early church. If you're ever interested, so Jesus dies, what happens next? That's all recorded in the book of Acts. The first, you know, few decades, honestly, of what happens. In chapter 2, verse 41, you know, the the Holy Spirit's come, and and people started to come to know Jesus, and so this is how they responded. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to breaking of the bread and prayers. And we came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all, by the way, verse 44, who believed were together. They were on the same page. And here's this interesting thing that happens. And they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belonging, distributing proceeds to all as they had needs. So Paul said, hey, by the way, this isn't necessarily the goal, but this is just kind of a byproduct that happens. There is a spirit of generosity that happens when we are all on the same page. When I care about you just as much as I care about me, then there's this spirit of the stuff that I have. By the way, oh, you're in need. Let me help you. You've got a problem. Let me help you. Your burden is my burden. My burden is your burden. Let me tell you, that's just tremendously different. Because in our culture, it's like, man, that sucks for them. I don't know what to tell you. Good luck. When biblically, the idea is we are so unified as believers together that when you have a problem, I have a problem. When you have an issue, I have an issue. When you've got stuff going on in your marriage, I've got stuff going on in my marriage. When you've got financial problems, I've got financial problems. And we're not talking about some weird governmental socialism. We're just going to, no, no, no. It's this idea that, man, when people, when, when, when something's going on with Lindsay, when something's going on with my wife, when she's saying, you know, gosh, well, I don't have enough money in the account, I'm not thinking, well, that sucks. Because I got my account. We have a joint account because we love each other. And so when she's got a problem, when she's got a problem at work, when I've got a problem at work, you know, some of you guys know Hayden works with me. That joke was weird, man. Top of the time, I'm like, man, let me tell you what Hayden did today. What was he thinking? I don't know. His problems, not his problems, her problems are my problems, but his problems ought to be my problems too. 
Because we both care about the same things. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and, get, and having favor with all the people. And this is the result. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Same thing happens in chapter 4, verse 32. Now the number of those who believe in what were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things belonged to him and his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was called and tells this particular story, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, here's, here, here's the point. The point is, after this, we're going to take up another collection. And by the way, for you guys, you guys who have a house, go sell your house real quick because we've got some needy people in the church. That, that, that's not the goal. The goal is this. That you would care so deeply. And that you would love each other so deeply. And that there would be a sense of unity. That it would genuinely be different. We would care one another's and carry one another's burdens. Let me tell you, this is why we believe so strongly in community groups. It's because I can't get to know 300 people personally. But I can get to know 10. Or I can get to know 12. Or I can get to know 8. And I can pray for them and they can pray for me. I can know what's going on in their life and they can know what's going on in my life. I can know what I need to hold them accountable for and they can know what they need to hold me accountable for. They can know the major life situations that are happening that I just have no control over and they have no control over. But I just need a community of people surrounding me in prayer. Because all of us have those times in life. And the center of this whole thing, the center of this whole thing is a group of people who are desperately wanting to know Jesus better. You see, the idea behind unity, the idea behind unity as a church isn't that we all decide, you know what, guys, we're, after church, we're going to go be unified. Because that's, like, how do you even do that, you know? It's just a weird concept. So we're going to go all and we're going to, I don't know, light a candle as we walk out because we're one and we're all the light of the world. You know, church, we do weird, goofy stuff all the time. But the idea behind this is all of us want so deeply and so badly to know Jesus that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter who gets credit. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter who does what. At the end of the, at the, end of the day, we all just want to know Jesus better and we want people to know Jesus better. It's kind of like, have you ever seen a sports team that played w- really well together? We're obviously going to, um, you know, talk about the Miami Heat a couple years ago when they had LeBron and they had D-Wade and they had Birdman. You know, anybody with me on this? Okay, <laughs> all right. Let's talk about Florida State a couple years ago when we won the national championship. You know, they had Jameis and Rashad Green. They just had the whole crew. You know, you had Telvin back there. You had all the crew that, you know, offense, defense. It just seemed like, man, they were with each other when they played together. Same thing with the Heat a couple years back. They were with each other when they played together. But let me just tell you, the way that Florida State was united when they won the national championship was not the fact that all the players decided, hey, let's just go on a retreat together and talk about our feelings. Because that, you know, Jameis, how do you feel? I don't know, Rashad, how do you feel? I don't know. Tell them, how do you feel, buddy? You know, that's obviously not what they did. 
They wanted to win. They were united by this idea. They were united by this purpose that they were going to be the best football team that they could possibly be. And they went through shared sacrifice, shared suffering. They did all kinds of stuff to get to the point, to spur each other on to the point, to be united because they all had this central goal. And for us as Christians, let me tell you, the goal has to be for you and for me to know Jesus as good as we possibly can and help as many people as we possibly can come to know him. And the result of us all as a community wanting to know Jesus better personally and wanting other people to know Jesus that we have relationships with, the result is that we're all going for the same thing. We're all doing the same thing. I'll I'll finish with this story. So this is probably seven or eight years ago, maybe ten years ago at this point. Eh, Seven or eight I'm going to go with. I had a buddy of mine who was getting married. He's getting married down, gosh, I forget, maybe it was like Orlando-ish area. And so uh, he had, you know, a, a kind of an eclectic group of friends, and he had, you know, friends from South Carolina, friends from Georgia. He had friends from Tallahassee because he went to school here. He was on the track team here, and he was getting married. And as he was getting married, you know, you kind of had this, like, you know, guys. Uh, it wasn't really a bachelor party, but, you know, we, all the guys had this one house that we were all staying to get ready for the wedding. And the guy who was getting married was a Christian. Pretty much all of his groomsmen were Christians. I remember sitting down the first night when we got down there, and we were only down there for two nights, sat down to the first night before the wedding. And as we were talking, I was talking with this dude who, on, on the cuff, just really wouldn't have had much in common culturally, frankly. He was from a little bit farther north, I was from a little bit farther south. He was from a different, you know, socioeconomic status when he was growing up than I was. He, at the same time, was from a different background, he was from a different ethnicity than I was. And we sat down that night, and as we just started talking and chatting and getting to know each other, he was a Christian, I was a Christian, we both started talking about friends that we have that don't know Jesus, we started talking about troubles and struggles that we have as Christians. And let me tell you, that night, in which many of you maybe have done this if you're a Christian, maybe even if you're not, if you just have someone with some shared experiences, we sat down, and that night had one of the most in-depth conversations about life, about Jesus and about ministry. And you want to know why? It wasn't because we sat down and said, you know what, let's be unified, dude. I don't know you. you I'm not going to see you ever again in my life. We may be Facebook friends. We'll see. Who knows? Let's be unified. It was this dude who wanted to know Jesus. And this dude who desperately wanted other people to know Jesus. And me, who wanted to know Jesus. And me, who's in the middle of ministry and desperately wanted other people to know Jesus. And that conversation brought about a depth of connection, of unity, that set all pre-existing preferences aside. So let me ask this question as we wrap up this thing. If that's all true, if that's all true, then how bad do you want to know Jesus? If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian specifically, is the main goal in your life to know God better? Is the main goal in your life to help other people to know him better? Because until that's the central goal of every believer in the church, we are going to be a preference 
oriented, disunified group of people. And it's my belief that God is going to do something. That God is going to give growth. That God is going to do a lot in us and through us this semester. But the number one way the enemy distracts and that the hope and dreams of churches is thwarted is through disunity. And the number one way that disunity happens is as people take their eyes off Jesus and take their eyes off themselves. They take their eyes off helping other people to know Jesus and they put their eyes on what's comfortable for them. So let me ask this question one more time. If you're in here and you're a Christian, how bad do you want to know Jesus? And how bad do you want other people to come to know him? And if you're in here, you're on the fence of Christianity trying to figure the whole thing out. Let me just ask you, how different would that be? How different would that be if you walked into a church and what struck you about the church was how one, how on the same page, how unified, how much there was a mutual love for each other between those people. The chances are that you'd probably be a lot more open to God. The chances are you maybe would give church another chance. My prayer is maybe you are giving church another chance right now. And maybe as you're here, maybe as you get to know us, you'll see that. And you'll see a heavenly father who loves all of us in spite of our insufficiencies. And in fact, because of our insufficiencies, gave his son Jesus to die for us. And I hope and I pray that you see that when you're here. And that maybe you see that as you interact with some Christians, as you leave, and as you go through life. So let's pray together.